welcome to the Grok Science Show. I am your host, Chenan Zhang. The term personalized medicine may be familiar to some of our listeners as a strategy taken for individual patients based on their family history, genetic makeup, environmental factors, behavioral preferences, and other personal traits that may affect their risk for a disease or tendency to respond to treatment. However, some physicians do not like this term, saying, We practice personalized medicine every day. It's called basic patient care. Point being that physicians make decisions on the best course of treatment based on patient preferences. Furthermore, some critics argue that it's unrealistic to imply that there is a unique treatment for each of the 7 billion human beings on this earth. A more recent term that has emerged is precision medicine. According to the National Research Council, Precision medicine refers to the tailoring of medical treatment to the individual characteristics of each patient. It does not literally mean the creation of drugs or medical devices that are unique to a patient, but rather the ability to classify individuals into subpopulations that differ in their susceptibility to a particular disease, in the biology or prognosis of those diseases they may develop, or in their response to a specific treatment. A lot of progress is being made in this area, and I recently attended a Chicago chapter Women in Bio panel event in which five expert panelists came together to discuss the implications and strategies shaping the evolving field of precision medicine. I spoke with several Women in Bio attendees before and after the event to get their take on precision medicine and the role of women researchers and entrepreneurs in the field as well as the role of women in healthcare decision-making. I first spoke with Kate Neville, chair of the Chicago chapter of Women in Bio, who gave me the 50,000-foot view of what Women in Bio does and what the goal of today's event was. Let's just start with you telling us a little bit about Women in Bio and what the goal is for this organization. Okay, Women in Bio was started about 10 years ago. The national organization, the Chicago chapter, has been around for about three and a half years now. And it's just an organization designed to foster the career development of women in the life sciences. So it started out as kind of an entrepreneurship to get women to you know, start their own businesses, but I think it's grown and evolved since then to just developing, making sure if you're in an organization that your career develops within that organization, you don't have to go start your own business, or now that there's so many people transitioning from academia into industry or other things that just keep popping up in the life sciences, helping people that are making a transition from one type of career to another, giving them role models and people who can, they can talk to about it and you know, say it's, it's okay if you, know, you make mistakes or if you do this, you know, it's all going to be fine. So, you know, it's been a great organization. Yeah, so a little bit about today's event, so it's Decision Medicine. And I think the public is starting to get to know a little bit more about this. So how do you think you can disseminate this information to the public? I think that's kind of the, the importance of today's event. A lot of people, you know, I'm in a field where I should know more about this, and I think I do, but you know, I'm a patent attorney by trade, so theoretically I'm on the cutting edge of technology. But I think this has been kind of a, a it's still formulating where it's going to go, and there's been a lot of issues either in the 
patent office and you know just healthcare privacy like you know people are scared I don't want them taking my genetic information what are they going to do with it yeah. and so I think this event is important to see what's already been done and where it's going to go and make people less scared and more informed so I, I think this is a good way to start spreading the word and there's all different levels you know there's university level there's there's industry levels that are all working on this so you know if everybody works together and people are working together i think it's going to be a great tool and we just have to tell people that it's out there i also spoke with Iqbal ashur leader of a research and development team in translational bioinformatics with a focus in innovation in genomics and molecular medicine she talked about what precision medicine is really about and what led to the emergence of the precision medicine strategies field. Precision medicine focuses not only in delivering a treatment for a disease with the idea of one drug fit all, but a more tailored, more targeted treatment for the individual, for the patient. So precision medicine is the use of molecular data, genomic data derived from DNA profiling, DNA sequencing that help define everyone's genetic makeup. When, when this data are incorporated to patient clinical information, it provides more comprehensive disease profiling for each patient, which could help predict in advance which patients, which individuals are most likely to benefit from a particular therapy. So it provides individualized and precise treatment. And, and, and this new field emerged thanks to the explosion in the last five, 10 years of cost effective technologies and cutting age science in DNA and genome sequencing, which provided opportunities to detect a whole range of human molecular data, helping scientists, clinicians, drug developers to understand genetic and biological basis of disease and trait, like for example, weight and height, etc. And to give you an, an example, the first DNA sequence of, of the human genome was completed after more than 10 years of research with a cost of $3 billion. Today, human genome sequencing could cost $1,000. And if you want targeted regions, what usually are called the markers, often used for genetic testing, for diagnostics and prognosis, the cost could range between couple of hundred dollars to five, six hundred dollars, just the testing. Iqbal also explained to me the various ways in which personal genetic data is incorporated into traditional strategies of drug development, as well as in the developing field of companion and complementary diagnostics. In order to develop more tailored drugs, genetic testing are incorporated within the pipeline of drug development. They are done to stratify a population of patients with the same disease. So for each subpopulation, we can develop or we can deliver a set of alternative drugs or treatment, for example, even a different doses for each subpopulation. And as part of the development of drug and re or repurposing of a drug that is already in the market, companion or complementary just diagnostics are basically molecular assay that measure levels of proteins, gene expression, or presence of specific mutations to assess 
a patient's risk factor um, for, for a number of conditions to provide a specific therapy for that individual. Finally, Iqbal mentioned the importance of precision medicine not only when patients get sick, but in the role of directed preventative care. Such diagnostics and prognosis help us to learn more about the risk factor to develop a disease um, and do something for it in advance. It could be sometimes even as simple as having a better diet. So precision medicine provides important preventive aspects. And, and through the event with Women in Bio, we wanted to provide a whole personalized experience on how important for everyone, ourselves, to get in touch more with our DNA, follow up with our doctor, treat ourselves better. Our participation is key in clinical trials and everything we do in life uh, regarding our health as it provides tremendous, tremendous opportunities to move forward faster and better with tailored treatment and individualized healthcare delivery that everyone deserves to have. I had a chance to mingle with the other attendees of the event during the networking reception, where I chatted with two women who specialize in patent law, which has a very relevant role in the rapidly developing field of precision medicine. Okay. So I'm with Sherry Oslick yes. and Kirsten Thompson. Well, one of the unique things with personalized medicine is, of course, there are specific treatments that are unique to someone, maybe because of their genetics. So how will that change the, the realm of patent law in terms of um, what we can put a patent on? You know, if you need to develop a patent for every single individual independently out there, that's just impractical. Uh, so the companies are going to need to focus on generalized technology to the extent possible, which is, I suppose, a little bit ironic when you talk about personalized yeah. medicine. But you know, methods of adapting administration, dosing, and 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 frequency, and and perhaps along that realm, so that if you know the the claims of the patent can depend on person's particular genetic makeup and to adapt accordingly so it might be you know so it's some kind of umbrella that covers the concept generally but is obviously still you know addressing the fact that this is for a personalized situation and then so one of the things that the general public who may not know the more finer details about genetics what is considered the general domain and what is their own personal, uh, not property, but that relates to them specifically. So how would you make sure that people are not concerned about their privacy being? I, I think there's a lot of fear mongering okay. that is generated by the media. And there are certain commentators who buy into that and help, you know, bolster that idea. And frankly, it's just ridiculous. Since you're never going to not have the right to, one, your personal body, or two, just the genetic code known to man in general. Um, and in fact, the Supreme Court's weighed in on this to a certain degree. Yeah, it's, it's actually just very recently. And it was probably one of the um, patent cases that was more out in the public and, and in the media than, than others. Um, and it related to um, the breast cancer genes and patenting. I don't know if you've 
part of this case, but it went up to the Supreme Court, and it was all about, you know, what, what could you patent? And people were concerned, like, oh, you know, do people have a patent over my body because I have this gene in it? And, and that's, okay, no, that's not the case. Um, the patent laws specifically exclude naturally occurring really anything. So, no, that doesn't happen. It, it, it really was an unfortunate translation from patent to commentary to the public that caused, I think, a lot of alarm and concern. And there was a lot of concern about um, the, the patent protection that um, Myriad had as far as access to the diagnostics. Uh, and, and this was really um, a big concern because it was very expensive. And people wanted, I want testing for you know, a very little amount of money. But this isn't the unfortunate reality of development. The investment has to go in financially. There has to be a return to the company for the financial investment. And what people were seeing is sort of the natural outcome of that. And it's very similar to any kind of new medication. Exactly. Drugs that are developed exactly. that people may not have access to them right away. The panel discussion began shortly after and provided to be a lively and thought-provoking discussion with talking points such as comparing companion versus complementary diagnostics, how to accelerate products to market, and a look at the clashing interests of all the key players in the field. Afterwards, I got to speak with one of the panelists, Bahija Jalel, Executive Vice President of AstraZeneca, who had a few thoughts on the direction of the field. So I'm doing a PhD yeah. program right now, but I'm actually doing a summer internship with Takeda. Yeah. And I definitely sense that there's a lot more convergence between the academia world and industry world. Yeah. So what do you see as the future of the collaboration between oh, those two? I think it's extremely important. Yeah. You know, so if you go from science and what science is about, is uh, for me, science is about being open yeah. is about collaboration and no one institution, no one company can yeah. claim that they have all the science and the knowledge of the world. So I think for, for me, if you're going to be in the innovation business, if you're going to be in the, in the science, you have to collaborate. Yeah. So I think I'm, I'm extremely pleased that the world is in from both sides, right? There's yeah. acceptance also from academia to collaborate with the, because we look at things in a very different way and it's complementary and I think that advances the science even more. So I am absolutely for it. Yeah, it was definitely very encouraging just with everyone was saying, yes, when the science is there, we'll implement it. And that's, for me, working in basic biology, it's a little bit more, um, it's a little harder for me to see how things go into the applications of the bedside of, you know, yeah. advancements, but it is great that that people are working to bridge yeah. that gap. Well, so, so let me tell you one yeah. thing that I worry about, that we go so much into the applied that yeah. I see in academia sometimes. They want us to do a lot of translatable science. Yeah. But I absolutely believe that we still need to do the science that you don't see that can be applied mm -hmm. because we don't understand it today. Yeah. But then down the road, we need to continue to understand the, the pathways. We need to continue to understand the mechanisms and others, even if we don't, we don't understand how it's going to be translated. Yeah. yeah, no, we need we need that. That's how we can advance science. Yeah. I think it's uh, it's really it's it's a great great time we're in. Yeah. So don't put down your pipettes just yet. No, <laughs> no, keep, keep no, at it, right? no, yeah. no, no, no. <laughs>
my scientists are not allowed yeah. to put down their pipettes, you know. Yeah. We, um, uh, the most important thing is to stay in, in the lab as long as they can, yeah. because that's the best way to, to continue, you know. Yeah. Finally, as the closing reception wrapped up, I had a conversation with Carolyn Hollins, a research scientist in the field of neurobiology and a strategic consultant about the important role that women play in making sure their loved ones receive appropriate preventative care. But, so um, you're a postdoc right now at UIC. I'm a postdoc, and I'm trying to make that transition into you know, the pharma biotech industry. Yeah. So I'm working with, um, well, I'm volunteering with Enterprise Works Chicago, which is a UIC uh, startup incubator. Okay. Um, and so I'm working with a diagnostic startup company. It's a cancer diagnostics. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I'm trying to sort of make the transition because you yeah. get that business experience. Um, without committing your, your paycheck and your money yeah. to <laughs> So with the diagnostics, are, is that specifically to do with what we were talking about today? Yeah, it's, uh, it was incredibly perfect because yeah. our idea is um, looking at people who already had cancer and had the tumor removed and then assessing their risk of recurrence, so the metastatic cancer that is going to come back. Yeah. And so our diagno- diagnostic is basically saying, are you likely to have recurrence or not, and then change the treatment based on that. Yeah. And so that's, okay. you know, it's a really interesting concept because obviously you don't want chemo if you don't have to have chemo. Right. Because there's yeah. so many other side effects. So, so okay, this is something I've been curious yeah. about. Um, there's starting to be a little bit of backlash. Well, I mean, there's always going to be kind of backlash against big pharma, but also with, um, you know, the recent Obamacare, the, there's kind of more critical look at what tests we're doing, if we're doing too many tests, or well, I think, the, um, what do you, yeah, what do you think? As, as a user of the healthcare system, yeah. I hate the, um, being uninformed about what I'm paying for and what things cost. Mm-hmm. So like when I go in to the doctor, it's practically impossible for me to figure out before I get the care what it's going to cost me. Right. Because it has to, you know, go to your health insurance and then they pay for it, you know. And I, I tried, you know, I had to get something that was sort of elective and I tried to find out before, you know, because yeah. I'm a postdoc and I care what it costs, yeah. you know, what it was and I couldn't find out what it costs. And it's yeah. like, do you want to choose between getting something done and, you know, not being able to pay for it? Yeah. And, like, my boyfriend never goes to the doctor because he doesn't want to pay for it. And I'm yeah. like, that's sort of foolish because then you could have preventative care before it becomes serious. Yeah. And that's, you know, we should be doing the preventative care. Mm-hmm. And so we want to encourage people to go early. Yeah. And the fact that you, that the cost is so unclear discourages that. Yeah. So I, but I feel like we need to overhaul sort of transparency on cost and, and medicine. Absolutely. That is yeah. actually one yeah. of the things that they're really like trying to drive home. And also... Going back to where you're saying, like not really knowing how much something costs beforehand, it's kind of interesting because many times doctors that prescribe these tests don't even no know, and yeah. it's it's not something that's really on their radar because in their mind, you know, this is what they're it's they know that it's it yeah. yeah. So I think definitely just making that also one of the things that doctors have to yeah. keep in mind. The whole idea of um, focusing on women as a consumer. Mm-hmm. You know, if you think of a mom, yeah. she's 
more likely to get all the tests for her kids because they're, you know, whereas maybe the dad. <laughs> well, actually, you know yeah. I mean? Just for the record, I do know many yeah. fathers that do take an initiative on their children's health, my own father included who made sure I had all my vaccinations on schedule. That's a key consumer Yes, when you're targeting it. Absolutely. One of my uh, epidemiology classmates had been doing a study on whether women of a married couple and men of a married couple, how likely each are to get screened for the most common cancers, breast cancer, lung cancer, colon cancer. And, you know, we've always, we've seen studies saying that Men of a married couple tend to live longer than because men. Because the, the wife, you know, the perception is the wife encourages them to get tested. Yes, they would together. Yeah. yeah, so yeah. I think that's very interesting. That definitely has some... And I, I mean, I see it in my own relationship because, yeah. you know, my boyfriend is like, I don't feel that well. And I'm yeah. like, go to the doctor. Yeah. <laughs> get over there. Major appointment. Yeah. So. You know, <laughs> so it's, you know, whatever it is about our own biological makeup that makes us more prone. Yeah, like, yeah. But... That's why I think it's really interesting because you're thinking about the consumer group, then you should be targeting women. Yeah. yeah. Because they're very aware of healthcare. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Grok Science Show on precision medicine strategies. I am Chanan Zhang. For more episodes or information, go to groks.net and follow us on Facebook or Twitter. See you next week on the Grok Science Show.